Welcome to another Invested Investor podcast. I'm sat here with Dr. Ellen Half-Davies. Ellen enjoys combining her professional career with extreme adventures. You're a former Welsh rugby player. You're also currently focusing on your company, Aperito, which ties you into your clinical background. So what led you to healthcare? Yeah, I grew up in North Wales and my mum was a nurse and from a very young age, so sort of three, four years old, I always knew I wanted to be a nurse and there was never any other sort of career path that I considered really. Becoming a paramedic instead of a nurse was as far off that I went throughout my whole sort of childhood in thinking what I wanted to do. And I often say that becoming a children's nurse is by far the best personal and professional decision I ever made in my life. Okay. So how long were you a nurse for? So I started my training in 95 and then I was still nursing up till 2007. So I had moved from sort of clinical after about six years of qualifying to do research, but still very much as a a nurse, but with some of the added research sort of phlebotomy, skin biopsy, GCP sort of obligation as part of that. So what changed? It was more opportunity, to be honest. There was never, ever a plan to leave clinical nursing. It was more of a sort of an opportunity came up, which sounded quite interesting. And it was more that, I guess, a combination of serendipity and opportunities and things that led me into research and then sort of the career pathways that followed. And as I said, never, ever thought that I would have ever left clinical. So the research you went into was? So I was uh, looking after children recruited into clinical trials. So around 20 different pharmaceutical funded clinical trials across four different therapeutic areas. And then that experience sort of motivated me to do my own master's in research methodology. And then that led on to then my PhD. So I turned out to be a part-time student for 11 years as well. (laughs) (laughs) So you've got your master's and your PhD. And then you then went into, was it the European Medicine Evaluation Agency? Yeah, so in 2007, Europe launched its paediatric regulation, which forced pharmaceutical companies to consider the needs of children in their drug development life cycle. By 2007, I'd been sort of, you know, looking after children in these clinical trials for quite some time getting increasingly frustrated at how inappropriate and sort of unchild-friendly these clinical trials were. Couldn't get my head around why pharmaceutical companies weren't doing better clinical trials and kept being told, oh, it's the regulators, they're making us do it this way sort of line. And so when I heard that the paediatric regulation was being implemented in Europe, I met the head of paediatrics in a conference, Anya Seremon, and sort of had a chat with her and sort of expressed my huge enthusiasm that I thought finally the regulation could lead to changes in clinical trials for children. And we had a follow-up email, follow-up meeting, and and then was amazingly offered the opportunity to be part of the paediatric team to implement the regulation in Europe. So did you manage to make those changes? Yeah, I think that's where naivety... Much like I thought that complete my PhD would sort of have the influence I wanted. And then you realise that only two people is likely to ever read your thesis other than you. You know, the paediatric regulation was a huge success in terms of 
finally changing the mindset that it's more ethical to protect children through research than it is to protect children from research. And sort of if we protect them from research, we end up with widespread dosing of drugs that we don't know what the dosing efficacy safety profile is. What I think shocked me was that as a regulator, you actually have very, very little influence on a lot of the decisions that you want to do in terms of the overall study design. And, you know, you are sat waiting for the pharmaceutical companies to knock on the door and tell you what they plan to do. And you have no way of really intervening in the way that I had naively thought. So after six years, which was fantastic, you know, opportunity, I was, you know, part of the WHO Essential Medicines List for Children working group, had fantastic opportunities, but still in my inpatient way, very frustrated that we weren't seeing the changes I wanted to see in clinical trials. So do you think that what you originally believed that regulation would change it, it was actually the pharmaceuticals or is it a combination of both? I kind of describe it as this sort of standoff between the two, you know, where they're both staring each other out to see who blinks first, really. But the most of the risk aversion, I think, is at the pharmaceutical side. They are far more risk averse and prone to sort of legal interpretation of everything by their lawyers then, you know, regulators are, you know, the adaptive pathway pilot, for example, was one that was saying, you know, come to us with innovative solutions, come to us with proposal, be open to be transparent. And, you know, nothing really innovative emerged from it. So I think the pharmaceutical industry is inherently risk averse, possibly for the wrong reason. I'm not always convinced it's because of patient safety. And it's just such a big beast of an organisation to implement any change. So you've had your civil servant background as a nurse and then in the European Medicine Evaluation Agency. What drew you to becoming a founder and startups? As I say, it was definitely not on the plan. And so sort of, you know, nearly five years later with uh, Aparito, it sounds like the most insane thing to say that I never actually planned to start my own company. I had looked towards going back to academia to try and develop the technology and the concepts in academia and then thought, well, even within academia, you're still bound with a lot of, you know, organisational, bureaucratic, grant writing things. So maybe another way to do it would be just do it myself as a legal entity, as a company. And in all honesty, I registered Aparito to start with as a legal entity in which to sort of legally operate as opposed to thinking, yeah, I'm going to be a startup. (laughs) (laughs) But your passion is clearly in healthcare. So Aparito, obviously it came out from not necessarily an entrepreneurial mindset, but do you feel that your background in healthcare has been massively beneficial? For me, having now been in the sort of tech startup, medtech, digital health space, I think we have seen a huge amount of explosion of interest in the space, particularly in the last two years. You know, four years ago was just a bit of a, a rumbling and now it's sort of a massive beast, if you like. And I think what's key is that I'm really driven from the patient need, the clinical perspective and the regulatory demand as opposed to thinking, I'm coming to it from a tech product, tech capability thing, and then saying, I've now got a product, let's look for a problem to fit it in sort of thing. 
So actually, let's give listeners a little bit of insight into the company. What is the company and what do you produce? So what we do are a tech-enabled company, which we've developed a software platform for capturing all patient-generated data. So what we want to do is validate new endpoints, new outcomes that can be captured remotely and passively by the patients themselves to illustrate what the disease burden and the symptoms and the impact of the disease really is from the patient's point of view in their day-to-day activities and not sort of from a clinical medical kind of diagnostic test sort of way. And so it's sort of technology-enabled utilising your smartphone apps, integration of wearables, videos, photos, those sort of things. So patients use your wearable tech and you collect the data. What's been the biggest drive of the business? Has it been the actual wearable or is it the data that's really pushed it forward? Yeah, so it's important to to sort of distinguish. I think wearable, much like blockchain and AI, is like this hot topic at the moment. And unless you've got wearable AI or blockchain in your (laughs) business plan somewhere, people think you're nothing. Wearable is one tiny piece of the picture. There's lots of other patient-generated data, like your medication adherence, your real-time symptoms, your adverse events, which can be captured in videos, photos, voice text. The wearable can, in some instance, add value. But I think, much like anything, the pendulum now is swinging far too far. And people are thinking, oh, let's just stick a wearable on anybody and everyone, and then we'll get some data. And I think we're just drowning in volume of data rather than really thinking what's the value of that. And then more importantly, you know, what's the real patient-centric right thing to do from a patient perspective? Is it right to be expecting them to wear the wearable for the right reason, the right type, the right duration and things like that? Is it? Not always. Definitely not. There is a huge balance to be had in terms of considering the quality of data that you need from the wearable tends to mean that you need medical grade wearables, which are very big, very clumsy, very short battery life and not Bluetooth enabled, very cumbersome, very expensive. Whereas the wearables that you could kind of integrate, you know, your more Fitbit sort of consumer grade ones can be fit for purpose if it's sort of general patterns over time, but they're not medical grade scientific data. And so that's where you have to balance what do you actually want in the context of use, is it fit for purpose, and is it right to be expecting the patients to be doing that all the time? So have you raised? We've done two investment rounds, which, yeah, I think from my background was a a massive culture shock and adjustment (laughs) and took some sort of getting my head around. But yes, we have closed on two rounds. What sort of culture shock and kind of challenges have have you noticed from that? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, I was... One, I'm female. There's not many female entrepreneurs. There's certainly not many female entrepreneurs in the medtech digital health space. I had no previous corporate industry kind of business background, very much a civil servant. And people just either kind of considered that I was trying to set up a charity or an NGO or just probably just didn't give me time of day (laughs) so it was quite difficult to stay saying what I wanted to achieve and not just sort of change the pitch to suit what investors seem to want to hear. What sort of help have you had along the way? 
We were lucky that we got Bethel Green Ventures right at the beginning. So Bethel Green Ventures sort of invested in us when we literally just had a few pages of PowerPoint ideas and nothing else. So they've been really instrumental in sort of giving me an overview of how the space works. And then there's obviously been people along the way. We were very lucky that Development Bank of Wales and Bayer Pharmaceuticals were early investors for us. And they sort of helped a lot. And we had a couple of sort of accelerator incubator programs between the BGV and the Bayer one. As I said before, you come from a healthcare background. Do you feel that because you've come from that industry, it's made it easier? Or do you think that just doesn't really matter when you start off your first company? I think coming from the healthcare background, I think it's given me a very good grounding about sticking to what I know is right with healthcare. Healthcare will really not be disrupted by tech in the way that other industries will be because of patient safety. And when I look around at all the other sort of startups, medtech, digital health companies that are all going, we're going to disrupt healthcare. Well, they just seem to be, you know, not understanding either the clinical pathways or the regulatory compliance or that kind of thing. So my combination of understanding clinical pathways, but also understanding regulatory compliance obligation meant that I was able to just crack on and do that and not get sort of too lost in the hype of tech mindset, scalable, fail fast, disruptive, which it just culturally doesn't work in healthcare. And I think, you know, Theramos is hopefully one example that people can finally click and go, actually, if we're investing in healthcare, you know, this is more akin to investing in pharmaceutical drug development diagnostic products, not in scalable tech kind of startups. What are the biggest challenges that you've faced and, you know, how can those help other entrepreneurs? I mean, it's an incredibly difficult question because, you know, we've had problems in terms of getting contracts, being a new startup and persuading big companies or anybody to to actually trust us to do a contract when you have to go through procurement and RFPs and due diligence and they go oh well you're only two years old we don't work with startups that size and so there's there's problems on that side then there's problems on trying to explain to the investors of what the vision and the big goal is and to actually keep investors on the same page as what you're trying to achieve. And what I mean by that is it's quite a difficult one because it's really tempting to sort of just say what the investor wants to hear if they're getting very excited about certain things. And if your investor is sort of new to health or not necessarily familiar and they kind of want you to explore certain things and push certain things, you know, it's sort of obviously quite tempting to sort of agree with them and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's actually much harder to say, well, actually, no, that's really inappropriate for healthcare or that's really not likely to fly. So it's that balance of being honest and telling no to investors, which is, you know, you're kind of thinking, oh, I'm going to offend him or I'm going to lose that investor. But in the long term, I think it's a better way to be. And how many staff have you got now? 
So we're a team of eight at the moment, but not all full-time. So the techies are now more of a sort of part-time. How have you found that? Did you ever have to do any hiring or firing in previous yeah, jobs? Yeah, so I had done people management, a sort of a management role in the NHS, and I'd sworn that I would never do management again. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't necessarily play to my strength. So yeah, that's obviously, you know, to do the whole management, recruitment, payroll, HR, it's really time consuming as well. And as a startup, you know, you can set somebody objectives and targets today and get it through. And then something will happen tomorrow that you need to completely change that. And some people are okay to understand that it's a startup and things change on a day-to-day basis. Other people, especially if they've been majority of the time in really big corporate, that sort of change and having to, you know, balance five, ten balls in the air at the same time is not everybody's cup of tea. Do you find that your staff are all on board because of the mission you've got and the culture you've created? So the tech team, uh, majority of them had never worked in healthcare before and they kind of come from a contact of a contact. And I do think they got really excited and buy into the bigger concept, you know, having worked in, say, more financial tech-related services before I think they are proudly sort of enjoying the opportunity to be in the field we're in now and of course then my other colleagues you know they'd already worked in healthcare so I think they're buying more into the concept that we need innovation to start changing these clinical trials experience. I know you've touched on some challenges that you've kind of faced but do you have a a main tip or a couple of tips that you could give to entrepreneurs about if they're thinking of starting a company at the same time so the two biggest you know aspects is time and stubbornness i know people tend to call stubborn it's sort of better to refer it to as being determined i guess or persevere but at the end of the day i think it comes down to just being inherently stubborn and i do not mean stubborn and don't change your mind about things definitely not but be stubborn sort of like a dog with a bone that you don't let it go and you just kind of keep... Resilient? Yeah, resilience definitely plays a part into it. You know, all those resilience, perseverance, determination, stubbornness, they're all part of that bigger picture that you just sort of know that you really want to carry on doing it. And then I think the other absolute fundamental thing is time. And I don't necessarily mean time as in, you know, oh, it's going to take me three hours to write this investor deck or eight hours to write this sort of financial forecast. It's more to do with a time duration from start to finish, because by the time you send it to somebody and then they read it and then send it back and then you have a meeting and then they have to have another meeting. And so it's that, you know, combination of cash flow and time is where biggest problems happen because things do not ever work as quickly as you anticipate. So I've sort of tried to adapt the rule now of double it and add a bit to what you know my expectations of time is. And then anything that comes through quicker than that is obviously just a Brucey bonus magic kind of thing. And time is your most precious asset. I mean, I didn't take any salary from the company for the first two and a bit years really and you know so my time really was valuable at that time 
and you know you kind of realize that other people then don't use your time as wisely or appreciate or respect your time in quite such a way so that's why for your own thing really protect your time do you think going back a little bit that the runway is a real factor that kind of eats at entrepreneurs or can eat at entrepreneurs yeah and that's where yeah runway is really the key thing that i think is what you know kills some startups i think and also it's the long runway that can kill an entrepreneur's sort of determination because it's really hard to maintain motivated and passionate about something in two months years kind of thing you know when you're exhausted and still have no cash and sort of stuff like that no no i've heard investors say before that you know one of the key things for startup failing is investors not giving them any more money you know there's a lot of reasons for that but again that's kind of hitting that end of the runway yeah so you talked about stubbornness all right i want to bring on the adventures you've rode across the atlantic you rode across the indian ocean you've sailed across the pacific and you've run across central america yeah well it was more walking and a shuffle than a run (laughs) how do you think that these adventures that you've done have influenced your startup life yeah so one of the key thing i think when you've rode across an ocean it does give you a sort of mindset that says actually, if I apply myself to it, I can achieve anything. So successfully rowing across an ocean does give you a sort of confidence or a belief that if you apply yourself, that you can go out and achieve anything. So that was, you know, a a key factor, I think. So do you think that an entrepreneur should row across an ocean to become (laughs) successful? (laughs) No, it's a very good question. I think every investor before they invest in a company should get an entrepreneur to run ocean to prove that they really want to do it yeah that would be a good test of uh, steely character but I think it's also to do more with you know demonstrating that if I start something I really try and follow it through to the end and finish it kind of thing and you know whether it was from my nursing days of working night shifts and you know four in the morning when you're really sleep deprived on your fifth night shift and you're cleaning up bodily fluids and tears and emotions you know you really have to want to be there to sort of carry on doing that you know rowing in an ocean and day 70 whatever and you're broken and a storm comes and hits you and you know you really need to want to be there and find And I guess it's been the same with Aparito, really, when it's not been so enjoyable. And, you know, I have to really remind myself that I I really want to be here. (laughs) No, no, I think that's sound advice for any entrepreneur that, you know, swapping your nine to five for what can be endless nights and lack of sleep and that stubbornness you said is absolutely vital. How do you adjust to normal life after a big challenge? Yeah, it's a good question. I used to call it sort of holiday blues to sort of epic scale. And it takes a long time to readjust. You know, you've been through what's, you know, on your personal level is this, you know, monumental experience. And you've got so much emotion to process and experience to share. And of course, within two days of coming back, none of your friends and family really care, you know, in the nicest possible way. They prefer to talk about the fact that, you know, next door's cat up a tree and you know things like that so it takes time to process it all and readjust to you know commuting to work and paying bills and you know things like that which I think is why I then always 
sort of set another challenge as my way of readjusting. So it is quite addictive. You get some, you know, feeling of really sort of pushing yourself to the limit that really makes you feel alive in those environments that you definitely don't get in a day-to-day existence. (laughs) So what is the next challenge? I had always said I really wanted to do the Barcelona World Race, which is sailing non-stop around the world with just one other person in a Imoka 60 boat. And that's still very much kind of what the real next big adventure that I would really throw myself into. The problem now is that I'm getting older and everything's getting more expensive and the Pareto is sort of becoming this all-consuming existence that certainly for the near future... I'm not going to be able to step away from that. So maybe a slower, more gentle cruise would be more fitting. You've also got to tell your investors this as well. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting, actually. On the one hand, I think some investors see the fact that I've rode oceans and sailed oceans and done various things as a sort of indicator that I'm sort of determined and things like that. But it was interesting on the last investment round, I actually had slight more of a panic thing saying, well, you have to give us commitment that you're not going to go and do another adventure for the next three years at least, because they were panicking that I was going off to do another adventure, which, you know, I thought was interesting. And, um, you know, my slightly devil's advocate provocative mindset was going, well, you'd never ask me if I was planning to have a child in the next three years and go off on maternity leave, would you? And it's like, oh, no, that's obviously very different. And I get that. But equally, unpaid leave for three months for an adventure, then it's quite different to nine months of maternity leave. But I think it's, you know, investors are obviously wanting to protect their interest. And um, the idea of me going off on an adventure doesn't reassure them. <laughs> well, you still got that investment round. So, yeah. Well, Ellen, it has been absolutely fantastic to hear from you, hear about your adventures. We're actually recording this with the last day of the Six Nations coming up, so we probably have a different view on that. (laughs) Grand slam. Yeah, (laughs) it has been absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Brilliant. (laughs) Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online and be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting and insightful content from The Invested Investor.